0: Hello Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara and I'm Miller, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in April in our Cosmic
1: Diary. So when looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you achieve night vision. Do allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing and if you are using a star app on your phone, switch on the red night vision mode.
0: Now as April begins, the moon is in its waxing crescent phase and will build towards a full moon over the next 10 days. On April the 1st, it can be seen in the constellation of Gemini, just above the prominent constellation of Orion, which is beginning to disappear for the summer, only to return
1: later in the year. For those of you wanting to see planets, your best bet is to look out for Jupiter rising in the southeast just after sunset. Located in the constellation of Virgo, it sits just above Spica, the constellation's brightest star. First find the famous star pattern known as the Plough or Big Dipper, which is shaped like a saucepan. Follow the curved handle of the pan, take a pit stop at a bright red star called Arcturus, and then continue onwards to Jupiter and Spica and on April the 11th the full moon sidles up to this duo.
0: Now also on April the 11th Jupiter makes its closest approach to the Earth, a point that astronomers call opposition. As a result it will be directly illuminated by the Sun and is primed for viewing with a telescope. Those with a medium-sized telescope should be able to make out its famous great red spot A spectacle that might not be around for much longer, as astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope have discovered that it is actually shrinking. Venus has now crossed in front of the Sun and appears just before sunrise in the east, rather than dazzling after sunset
1: as it has done for the last few months. Then on the 22nd and 23rd of April, we see the peak of the annual meteor shower known as the Lyrids. It gets its name because the shooting stars appear to radiate across the sky from a point in the constellation of Lyra. Scan your eyes wide across the eastern sky from a dark site, and you should spot a meteor every three or four minutes. Now, despite their name, shooting stars are not stars at all. Instead, they are tiny cosmic dust grains glowing as they tear through the atmosphere. These particular dust trails come from Comet Thatcher, which deposited them in the path of the Earth's orbit as it blazes around the solar system.
0: And if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. Now for our cosmic news. Welcome back, and this is the Cosmic News part of our podcast. This is where me and Rad like to talk about our favourite news stories in the month, Uh, and we've got two different stories we'd like you to pick your favourite. So once you've had a listen to them, let us know which one you think uh, is the most exciting, I guess. So, Rad, we're going to start off with your story.
1: Give us a headline. Right, this is it. Seven, seven potentially habitable worlds discovered around the same star. What? Yeah. This is a small star with seven dwarf planets, I guess. But the star itself is a dwarf star, which makes it quite funny. But there you go. Yes, potentially seven habitable worlds. Imagine that. That's like the big the, the largest number of habitable worlds discovered going around one star this is huge huge news it's
0: almost like our solar system we've got you know our eight planets but only one of them is habitable imagine having all those other
1: planets being potentially seven now there's a, a region around every star called the habitable zone um, and so obviously the Earth lies in the habitable zone of the Sun and it determines the temperature on that world. So if we're too close to a star, it's going to be too hot. If we're too far away, it's going to be too cold. So this is why it's also known as the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone. It's just right. Um, so out of those seven, there are three that lie in the habitable zone of that star but scientists are saying that the other four could also potentially because they're so close to each other that they could potentially be habitable it depends on other things like their atmosphere the composition and thickness of their atmosphere and other things as well that might be happening on that on those planets okay so let's talk about the star first of all it's called trappist one cool i think we need a new new name for that star <laughs> um and it's an ultra cool dwarf star So a little bit about this star. It's smaller than the Sun, and it's much cooler than the Sun. The average temperature of our Sun, the surface temperature is about 5,500 degrees Celsius. Uh, The temperature of this star is around about 2,000 degrees Celsius, which makes it a red star. And it is smaller than our Sun. Um, In fact, it's a little bit bigger than Jupiter, but it's actually 84 times more massive than Jupiter. So that means uh, it's a bit bigger in diameter but it's got a lot more mass in it so it's quite uh, i guess it's quite it's much heavier dense. yeah more dense than uh jupiter as i said it's got these seven worlds potentially more than that but seven have been discovered so far the star itself uh is 40 light years away from us so that means a text message would take 40 years to get there travelling at the speed of light, which is 300 million metres per second.
0: So it sounds very close when you say 40 light years, but now that you've put it into perspective, we're not talking about somewhere we could travel in our lifetime.
1: Well, do you know what? An estimate, if we were to travel at the fastest speed that we currently have in terms of spacecraft technology. So these spacecrafts that are out in space and they've been propelled using gravitational assist from other worlds, okay? So they've been accelerated to really high speeds. If we were were to uh, reach that speed, uh, it would take us at least 700,000 years to get to this star. Yeah, Yeah, not a place we're going to soon. You're either gonna have to hibernate or your great, 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 great grandkids are gonna get there we don't know we're just guessing that they're habitable we think that they're they're rocky the astronomers think that these planets are rocky but whether they've got water whether they've got the right conditions uh, for life or for us to to colonise don't know Okay, so how how was this planetary system discovered? Now, often with exoplanet discoveries, there's a a variety of methods that astronomers use. Uh, This was discovered primarily using the transit method, uh, where they look for regular dips in the starlight. And that's because of planets crossing the face of that star and blocking some of the light and of course as it goes round it continues to block a bit of the light comes around the back of the star then back in front of the star blocks another bit of the light and so you get what we call a light curve so if you were to plot the brightness of that star over time then you'd see lots of regular dips in the brightness so indicative of there being something orbiting that star absolutely and if there were intelligent life forms looking back at the sun they would see Um, If they plotted the brightness of the sun over time, they would see lots and lots of dips from its eight planets. And of course, you've got the dwarf planets and everything else going around. And also, those discoveries are confirmed by something called the radial velocity method. And uh, this is looking at the gravitational tug of the planets pulling on the um, star itself. So these stars wobble, and our sun wobbles because it's being pulled by all the planets orbiting it so um, that's another indirect way of finding exoplanets so using those two methods together we know for sure that this star has seven dwarfs seven planets orbiting it
0: so it is important that we always use uh different methods right of trying to find these exoplanets so if we just used one method it wouldn't be counted as an actual confirmation it's more like a discovery yeah, so we
1: have to have two different methods to actually oh, yeah. confirm it. This is really important in science. Um, it's uh, Whenever there's a brand new groundbreaking discovery, particularly if it's something that is uh, shaking uh, the theories of science, like a couple of years ago, a group said that they had uh, discovered uh, that neutrinos, these uh, very, very uh, kind of light particles that don't interact very well with matter, they thought that they'd uh, measured these particles to have a speed greater than the speed of light, which... Uh, Seems impossible. The laws of physics, absolutely. And so they they um, published their results and then asked the scientific community to reproduce that experiment and to see if that was actually true. Um, and so that's how science works. This is great. When we we've got an amazing discovery like this, then it has to be confirmed. By another experiment, so this is why you know we're, we're pretty you know astronomers are pretty sure that this is a real discovery. Now the thing about this star is that it's much smaller and dimmer than the sun, uh, which means it has a much longer lifespan than the sun. So our sun formed four and a half billion years ago; it's got another five billion years to go. So that gives it a total lifespan of ten billion years. But Trappist One has a total lifespan, we reckon, of about 12 trillion years, all right? So that's 12 million million years. That's a thousand times longer than the sun's lifetime. So they will live much longer lifetimes, these small red stars. And so if there are habitable worlds, and if there are life forms on these worlds, then they will enjoy a much longer lifespan.
0: I suppose that also means that life has a longer time to evolve as well, uh, if, you, if you're around a star that has a very short lifetime, it seems kind of unlikely that oh, yeah. so life really, will have time really, to develop. Oh, yeah, so really, really
1: big uh, blue stars, uh, they don't live for very long. They live for a fraction of the sun's lifetime. Um, and in fact, it's thought that it took maybe a couple of billion years or maybe one and a half billion years for, the, for just single cell organisms to form on the Earth. So, uh, yeah, you do need billions of years, we think, just looking back at the history of our origins on the Earth, just for, for the first cells to form. Okay, well, you know, what about these planets? What about their orbits? Well, their orbits are quite different to the orbits of our planets. In fact, um, remember, this star is much cooler and much dimmer than the sun. So these planets are actually orbiting much closer to this star. And they all lie within Mercury's orbit around the sun. All seven of them. Absolutely, but remember, this star is a lot cooler than the sun. So, uh, otherwise, you know, if the Earth lied within the orbit of Mercury, we'd be incinerated because the average temperature of Mercury is about four hundred and fifty degrees Celsius. Oh, wow! So we wouldn't have any water. And uh, just to give you an idea of their orbital periods, okay? So uh, the Earth takes three hundred and sixty-five and a quarter days to orbit the sun. Uh, the closest of these seven planets orbits Trappist-1 in only one and a half Earth days. And in the seventh planet, its year passes by in only 18.8 Earth days. So really, really short really quick. orbital periods. Can you imagine? You'd have a birthday every one and a half Earth days. I'd be ancient by now. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, you, we challenge you to work out your age in, in Trappist-1 years. Um, and because they're so close to each other, these seven friends, um, they also have gravitational interactions on each other. So they pull on each other um, and that can affect maybe if they've got geological activity, if, if, if they've got gravitational pull on each other, that will affect their crust. And it may affect their atmospheres. Who knows? You know, so there's lots of things we need to consider there. Now, it's thought that they were formed in a huge protoplanetary disk. So this is a huge disk of swirling gas and dust. And it's thought that they migrated inwards from the outskirts of that disk towards closer in towards the star. And they think if they formed further out where it's cooler, then they would have acquired volatile elements uh, like carbon and uh, nitrogen and sulfur and possibly water um, and then they migrated inwards. Um, so scientists are thinking that maybe these planets might have substantial amounts of water. So that's also very, very exciting news as well. Uh, something else that they mentioned is that these planets might be tidally locked. What does that mean? Well the moon is tidally locked. Over many 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 years its spin rate So when it's spinning on its axis, that has slowed down uh, hugely. So it used to spin a lot faster. So we would have seen all of the sides of the moon. But now we only ever see the one side of the moon called the near side. We see the same craters, the same seas uh, as it goes through its lunar phase cycle every month. So one side of the moon is continuously facing the Earth. And then we've got the far side, which is continuously facing uh, space, I guess. So if
0: it's tidily locked, it takes the same amount of time to orbit
1: as it does to spin on its axis once. Yes. Absolutely. So our moon takes uh, 27.3 days to orbit the Earth and it spins on its axis once every 27.3 days. Just enough. So it's constantly turning just a little bit so you only ever see the one side of it. So it's thought that all seven of these planets are tidally locked. So if you were living on one
0: side of this planet, you'd pretty much be in daylight for all hours of the day.
1: Absolutely. And that would actually lead to very, very... Uh, high large temperature differences between the near the day side and the night side. And one side effect of that is they think there'll be huge winds all right convection currents in the atmospheres where you've got hot air moving into cooler regions on the night side and that will produce huge gusts of wind. So well I mean you know I don't know how strong the, these winds will be but it's some it's quite an interesting thing to imagine alien weather. Uh, Something different to world, us, you know. And as you said, one uh, one side continuous daylight the other side continuous nighttime
0: imagine having to migrate from day side to night side every time you wanted to yeah. Yeah, go from you know being able to see the sun to being able to see the stars
1: absolutely but they think if there are life forms and these life forms will be living um kind of on the terminator so this is the boundary between the the lit and the unlit sides So Interesting. where it's continuous sunset or continuous sunrise imagine that's really, really uh, pretty way of thinking about it uh, they were a bit worried about the star itself these red stars tend to uh, have lots of flares, lots of eruptions, and they can uh, produce uh, huge amounts of x-ray and ultraviolet radiation every so often. Um, And if that's happening, then that can erode the atmospheres of orbiting worlds, or um, it can actually lead to the breakdown of water. So uh, if there are water molecules, if there are oceans and seas, then these water molecules might be broken down. um, And so hydrogen is lost to the atmosphere and you're left with oxygen behind and a reduction in the water quantity on the surface. there's a lot of chemistry going on there but you know if they are very watery worlds then they might still have enough water. For for life to exist, so it it doesn't mean that there won't be any life forms. It's just something that that we need to consider. And of course, the future lies in the latest technology that's uh, going to be either launched into space or built on the ground here. So, there are two telescopes that we're very excited about the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be launched uh, next year. Uh, It's going to be the successor of the very famous Hubble Space Telescope. It's going to have a much bigger mirror, about three times wider. And this telescope will actually take data in the infrared. The red end of the visible spectrum and the infrared part of the spectrum. And planets are very bright in the infrared. So it makes it perfect for exoplanet hunting. And also there's going to be the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope, which is being built right now on the top of a mountain in Chile. Uh, They've actually shaved the top of the mountain so they could fit. the base of the telescope on, because this telescope is going to have a mirror 40 metres wide.
0: So you had to carve quite a big piece out,
1: huh? (laughs) Yeah, just fit this uh, huge, huge mirror. Um, And that telescope will see first light, that's what we call it when we open the telescope for the first time, so it will see first light in 2024, so that's not long to wait. And so those telescopes will, will hopefully give us an idea of what's in the atmospheres of these planets if they do have atmospheres um, and if we find oxygen and methane and things like that and water vapour then it's that's incredibly exciting news. Now the last thing I want to mention is the fact that these seven planets are very very close to each other particularly the, the, the ones that lie in the habitable zone. Remember I said there were three that lie in the habitable zone um, and in fact they're so close to each other that if there are life forms and these bacteria are encapsulated in small rocks or meteorites and these meteorites get ejected from the surface as earth rocks have been ejected away from the earth and martian meteorites some of some of which have landed um, on the earth so that will be happening between these rocky worlds meteorites will be flying to and fro like a chaotic game of tennis and landing on each other's worlds and so life could hop right from one planet to another how amazing is that? So, so
0: even if there wasn't life on one of the planets, because yeah. of this
1: kind of rock hopping, rock hopping, absolutely. all three of
0: them could be inhabited. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So now the scientists are debating as to if life can hop between those three worlds, would you get an identical species on each of those three worlds? But then another scientist says, another biologist says, well, it's really difficult for life to island hop on the earth that's quite difficult you get pockets of species that are uh, adapted aren't they yeah Yeah. absolutely they're unique to that particular island you won't find them anywhere else and if you did get life hopping then depending on the unique local conditions of that world they might evolve slightly differently to their neighbors on the other planets that's really exciting that's really cool imagine
0: like finding life and then also seeing how life can evolve by just changing certain kind of
1: tweaking conditions. absolutely so you've got three laboratories there out in space, uh, you know, where potentially all three have got life forms that may have originated from one world, but let's see how they've evolved in those different conditions. I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, (laughs) but you've got a dream, haven't you? Right. Anyway. Your turn, Dara. I okay, can't wait
0: this. I've got a super short story, and it's kind of about uh, a new stellar event. So we know of things like eclipses happening. We know of galaxies colliding. We know of meteor showers in our sky and supernova explosions. But there may be a new type of stellar event called an imposter supernova. An imposter supernova. An imposter, one. yeah, exactly, a fake one. So uh, apparently uh, it may look something like stars are faking a supernova, explosion. Um, and it's not sure that they actually are going supernova, but it just looks like they are. Um, so what we're finding is that stars are suffering from very like large outbursts. So they're just uh, injecting their material out into space. And it's very similar to what a supernova might look like. But is this an explosion? So they are. They're kind of explosions right. and outbursts that make it look like a supernova. Now the difference between uh, what they're kind of terming an imposter supernova and a real one is whether we Can determine whether a star has ended its life. So, when a star goes supernova, it's basically ended its life. It's ejected its material out into space, and what we get left behind at the centre is either a neutron star or a a black hole. Um, But in these types of events, they're finding it's quite difficult to actually see whether the star has ended its life uh, and whether it has actually been a supernova explosion. So, the star that they've been studying is one that they've called SN 2015BH, and it's a luminous blue variable star. so blue being a very, very hot star and variable in the terms that its brightness is changing. So it's not constantly uh, a certain brightness. And in the past 21 years, it's suffered a series of violent outbursts. Wow. So for 21 years, it's been letting off material out into space. Um, so this star has been studied very intensely to see whether it is a supernova or whether it's an imposter one. So we're right. looking for fake star or real star. Um, so what is, if we think about what a supernova is, uh, these are very high energy events, yeah. they're a kind of explosion where if you've got a star, it's held up by uh, the pressure from nuclear fusion in its core, and once this pressure isn't sufficient or large enough to kind of hold itself up against the gravitational pull, that star will collapse in on itself and the result will be a supernova. But there are different types of supernova. So the ones that we call a uh, type 2 supernova, they're the ones where you've got Uh, a star that's more massive than our sun so kind of eight times more massive than our sun or even larger when those stars end their lives they end their lives as supernova uh, and they eject their material
1: out into space and the supernova explosion itself doesn't last very long not at all so
0: these can be very quick uh, events but the result is uh, a kind of uh, a nebula of material that we can watch uh, over thousands of years so the crab nebula being a supernova that happened you know a thousand years ago Mm -hmm. uh, but we're still seeing the remnant of it Now in our sky um, but the other type is a type 1a supernova mm-hmm. so this is where you've got a smaller white dwarf star um, and if it's in a binary system or a multiple star system sometimes it can feed off that other star uh, and it can accrete material off it and if it's uh, kind of takes enough material from its neighbouring star, it will become uh, too kind of um, dense or it won't have enough pressure from inside to hold itself up so against it its gravitational pull, so it will collapse in on itself and we will get a supernova. But those ones are different because they always uh, have a certain brightness with which they explode with because of that critical mass that they have to kind of overcome before they collapse. So the star that they're looking at, uh, SN2015BH, we're looking at a type 2 supernova. A large star, a blue variable star that's coming to the end of its life. So what we know is that stars like these show two different types of eruptions. Mm -hmm. So they'll have regular outbursts. But then the star will return back to its original state. So it's like huffing and puffing, having a little tantrum, but coming back to normal. But then you also get giant eruptions. And when those giant eruptions happen, that star changes forever. So something like a supernova explosion. Ah. Does it
1: lose a huge amount of mass? Yes. In that okay. So
0: it'll lose an incredible amount of mass. So the story of this star is that it's been studied since 1994. And since then, it's had minor eruptions constantly happening. So they're kind of on and off, on and off for the past 20 years. But in February 2015, they detected an outburst, which was classified as an imposter supernova. So it expelled a huge amount of material out into space. It was bright like a supernova, not bright enough to be a supernova, but pretty bright. And following that, in the following kind of months, they made weekly observations and they saw that this kind of decay in brightness so just like a supernova you have a massive outburst and then it kind of dims Ah. again so they saw that happening that was in february 2015 following that in may the same year so only three months later they saw an even more intense outburst so this was actually then called the main event. Right. And that imposter supernova, oh. she quotes, was called the precursor event. Right. So it's like an explosion before the main event.
1: <laughs> and A uh, taste of what's to come. Right? The trailer exactly. before the main event. Uh, but
0: this one was more comparable to a supernova. So it was much brighter, more mm. energy. But the crazy thing about this is that for eight days after that main event, instead of its brightness dimming, yeah. its brightness went up, it increased oh. for eight days. Um, so it's not like a supernova explosion where you've got an outburst and suddenly dims as yeah. the energy has kind of, kind of gone out into space. While that main event happened for eight days, there was a, an increase... Or in intensity of that star but like other events like supernova following that you've got the kind of dim and luminosity and the reason that they can't confirm that this star has gone supernova is because its peak luminosity was on the lower end of what we expect for a supernova ah. so it's much brighter than the imposter supernova event yeah. but not quite bright enough to be like the the normal supernova events mm-hmm. that we see in our sky so We have to wait a few years to see um, when that kind of material is ejected out. Can we see a neutron star at the center? Has it actually gone supernova? Now, the thing that made me think, why are stars doing this? Why are they they making it look like they're faking a supernova? And one of the theories is that these stars are trying to fast track their lives a little bit. So um, blue variable stars, they're very big stars, they're very massive stars, and they transition to a wolf rayet star. Right. So a Wolf-Rayet star is basically the last kind of phase of their life. What they're trying to do is get rid of their outer hydrogen envelope completely. Um, And once they do this, they become a Wolf-Rayet star. Okay. They're super windy stars. Very, very windy stars. So one of the things is that very strong stellar winds eventually could blow off that hydrogen envelope. Ah. Um, But these really strong winds aren't strong enough to do that. So that can't be the reason why they're doing this. And also, if we think about having one giant eruption that might get rid of that hydrogen envelope, mm. well, that's not solving the problem either. Mm. They've seen uh, a star called Eta Carina, and it's lost uh, forty times the mass of our sun, and it's had uh, two giant eruptions, but it still continues to be a luminous blue variable so it star. it hasn't
1: reached its final.
0: So it hasn't yet. So death stage. It's okay. had giant eruptions. That's not it. Uh, strong stellar winds not getting rid of that hydrogen envelope so it's thought that these kind of outbursts are the star trying to fast track and get to a point where it's helping that hydrogen envelope get expelled out into space so that it can transition to that wolf phase so it's like a teenager trying to become an adult a bit too fast <laughs> that's how i'm trying to think of through this. rage
1: <laughs> through rage
0: um maybe uh, that's why these stars are basically going through these patterns of eruption so it raises the questions of kind of Thank <laughs> you are there is this a new type of stellar event yeah. is it a precursor event so is this a yeah. kind of alarm a precursor imposter supernova happening 40 days thereabouts later you're going to get a main supernova event is that the case because mm. if that is the case well if we look up in the sky we could actually predict when supernova are going to happen yeah yeah if we find these imposter supernova events we can you know point our telescopes up ready for the main event so that could be something quite new uh, to have a look for and also we want to find out you know what driving these eruptions we still don't understand uh why these blue variable stars are trying to or how they're getting rid of their hydrogen envelope right we don't think it's just stellar winds we don't think it's giant eruptions yeah could it be these violent outbursts so it's all about finding the physics of how this is happening but it's um a pretty exciting kind of discovery nonetheless we could have another stellar
1: event uh, on our horizons and you can imagine like if there were planets orbiting those stars with those continuous huge violent eruptions no chance uh any any vulnerable uh, cells of life would just be obliterated yeah i instance. wouldn't so, fancy
0: living anywhere near no. a blue variable <laughs> star like that wow. so yeah imposter supernova could they be a new
1: stellar event that's, that's my really story amazing. so potential life on uh, these little planets and no life around violent <laughs> stars that's so, it uh, contradicting stories Absolutely. We're going to put this on Twitter. We're going to put it to a vote. Um, If you would like to vote for your favourite store, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can find us at at ROG Astronomers if you have the hashtag ROG Schools or we can chat to you. Um, So uh, hopefully we'll see you again next month for our uh, May podcast. Uh, So clear skies, happy stargazing.